ESPN LA 710. Welcome to ESPN LA. I'm Laferne Cusack. For more information, log on to ESPNLA.com and uh, go to Experience page to download podcasts or check me out on Twitter at Laferne Cusack. Today we're talking men's health with Dr. Elmo Agatep. He is a family and sports medicine physician with Optum Care Medical Group in Seal Beach. In addition, he just got back from China. Tell us why you just came back from China, doctor. Well, I was really fortunate enough to actually now start working with the USA Women's Water Polo Team. And uh, we just returned from a very successful trip um, for the World Super League Finals at the Shanghai, China with the women's water polo team. Oh, how did that go? Um, it was a wonderful experience. It's my first time in an international um, tournament, tournament with the women's water polo team. And, uh, boy, it, it, it was definitely an educational experience and uh, something for me to remember. You were also training the physician for the 2016 U.S. men's and women's beach volleyball team. How did that differ from the U.S. women's water polo team and what you're able to provide as a physician? Um, well, it, there's several things that actually varies as far as covering um, each team. Um, with the women's water polo team, um, I'm only charged with caring for one team, whereas in the beach volleyball team, I'm charged with caring for several teams. So uh, each one of each two-man team um, is an actual individual team with the beach national um, volleyball teams. So you could travel with maybe eight um, athletes, and that makes up four teams, each one of them very individual in their needs, um, each one of them different in the way you want them to care for them. So you, have, you do have to think of, of very many factors um, in managing the beach volleyball team. Uh, in comparison, the water polo team is uh, one team um, comprised of you know 13 to 15 women at one time, uh, and, and their needs are very similar, um, and it seems like there's a much it's easier to wrangle them up and care for them, um, whereas when you're caring for eight individuals, it's hard to sometimes get their schedules together. Now, um, and also, it seems like the medical issues seem, seem to be very different with each one of the teams as well. I know we were talking the last time you came on about the injuries that the volleyball team, the beach volleyball teams would have and how that affected each of the uh, athletes. So with the U.S. water polo team, I would think that it's less injuries because you're in the water. But I'm sure that's ignorance. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, contrary to what I would probably have expected myself. Um, and there was a lot more traumatic injuries, actually, with the water polo team. And I was quite busy uh, dealing with a lot of orthopedic injuries. Um, the most prominent ones were actually broken noses and dislocated and broken extremities, actually. Oh, um, in fact, when we were in Shanghai, we had three broken noses and you know, a, a dislocated toe that was eventually broken um, that I had to handle and keep them in play. So that was very interesting and, and injuries that we don't often see at beach volleyball. Oh, my goodness. That, that sounds yeah. traumatic. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah, it's quite. Uh, it was quite the, it, you know, the educational experience. Uh, you know, not having been around water polo, um, you know, most of my sporting career, my athletic career. Um, yeah, seeing it firsthand and seeing how uh, physical the sport is, especially it, it, with these women, it, it seems that they're quite fearless, and, and you know, their threshold for pain is quite high. 
So what did you do? What was the process in helping the women get back into the water and back into play? Um, yeah, especially for the traumatic injuries, you do want to make sure that, you know, the, the immediate um, injury is taken care of. So making sure that the bleeding stops before they enter back the pool, um, making sure that the nose is, is um, you know, safe to go back into the water and that they can breathe out of the injured nostril. Um, you know, you're tempted to actually reset the nose when you're, you know, at that, at poolside, but knowing full well that if they go back into the water, it's going to get dislocated again. So oftentimes we wait till they're done um, playing to, to try to reset the nose and then making sure that they don't have a concussion. So um, with concussions, that's something that now we're very aware of and screen really carefully for just to make sure that the athlete does not suffer a second concussion because that's when complications kick in. Right. Um, so we're very mindful of that and have to monitor them really closely. That's something. <laughs> yeah. That's hardcore. I didn't know water yeah. polo was so hardcore. <laughs> exactly. I mean, watching watching them like live on, on you know, poolside and, and then getting to actually educate myself with several videos on, online and that you realize how physical the sport is. It's, it's like mixed martial arts in the water. Yes, yes. And Dr. Agatep, you are taking today um, to join us from the field. Tell us why you're uh, at the softball field today. Oh, my, my youngest daughter is playing in a tournament down here in, um, uh, I think it's Laguna Niguel that we're at. And uh, she's playing for an all-star team for our, uh, our fair town, Los Alamitos. Um, she's playing with the 8U they're eight under all-stars, um, and uh, hopefully if we win our two games today, we'll be going to the state uh, state tournament. Oh, well, good luck to you. So your whole family is a bunch of athletes. Yeah, I mean, we're very fortunate that the girls love athletics. Um, mm-hmm. You know, our our, our daughters are, are both uh, involved in athletics. I mean, my oldest is a swimmer, and my youngest is both a swimmer and a softball player. That's so cool. That's really awesome. Yeah, yeah, I'm very proud of them. Well, Dr. Agatep, we were talking about men's health, and um, I know June is a men's health month, but we're going to celebrate it year-round. How about that? I hope so. I yeah. mean, I hope that, you know, there's there's increasing awareness for men's health and issues surrounding keeping our, our fathers, our brothers, our grandfathers healthy. Yeah. Now, a lot of people, I don't know if they still say this, that men are sicker and die younger than women. Is that still the case in 2017? Yeah, unfortunately, even in 2017, even in developed countries like ours, um, men still um, lead the way as far as mortality um, in comparison to you know, our, our women. Um, so increasingly, we're, we're really stressing among primary care physicians and doctors who do preventive care really talk to their patients and, and try to emphasize how important it is that uh, men really pay attention to their health. Now, why do you think that is? Is it is it still the same old of, you know, I don't, I don't need a doctor until, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm on my deathbed. I don't know. Unfortunately, I suffer from that on occasion myself, so I would probably say that that's part of the, the problem. Um, second, I think there's, a, there's also, um, you know, both physiological and, and social and psychological factors that play into, you know, our, our men's health issues. Um, you know, men seem to die 
um, at higher rates from cardiovascular problems. Uh, men also suffer a lot from psychological problems, um, and a lot of them tend to suffer quietly. Um, part of it is because, again, like you said, there's that, that, that stigma of trying to talk about you know, mental health mm-hmm. or depression. Um, and also, a lot of men, and just speaking anecdotally with friends, um, they're very reticent to like see their doctors about you know things that bother them, and if it seems to be that that you know that culture of hey we're men we're supposed to be tough suck it up and then deal with it. Yeah, and then you're dead, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Come on, man, don't suffer in silence. That's what I say. I agree with you. Is there a way, or on your end as a doctor, that pushes out? men coming forward to discussing their health more easily and, and getting checkups more readily? Yeah, I think one of the main things is to, to, to really form a bond with your patient. You know, have them trusting you, that you're not just a physician to them, but also a friend. Um, it seems to, it's easier for, for my male patients to make that leap that uh, I can trust this individual to actually, you know, understand and know my 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 you know, most intimate kind of complaints, mm-hmm. you know, and oftentimes those complaints are, are you know, it, it, they feel vulnerable because of those complaints, right? Um, they're, they're afraid to talk about, you know, their, their sadness or they, they, they're afraid to talk about their stress. They're afraid to talk about, um, hey, I'm not able to urinate as well or, hey, I'm not able to um, have as much libido as I used to or, I'm having abdominal pain or chest pain. So things that, that they should be openly talking to their doctor about, um, I think it's important that the physician make, make their patients comfortable. And that's kind of like my approach to my patients. You said uh, cardiovascular. Does that have a lot to do with smoking or is it just um, the way we eat now? Yeah, smoking, fortunately, a, a recent study actually was just published that, that showed that smoking has you know, decreased um, increasingly, in, in, in especially in the United States, um, but unfortunately, cardiovascular deaths uh, rates have not followed that decline. Um, so there, are, there's other factors that play to it, and, and increasingly, we're starting to understand stress plays a huge role into it. And um, you know, with the economy, with social stressors at home, and men tend to actually keep that stressor in, so they're not able to have a social valve to let it out. That affects them a lot, and, and stress in a big way affects the body in so many ways. You know, it decreases your blood pressure, makes you gain weight, so that increases your risk for, um, you know, heart attacks and strokes and diabetes. Um, so those play a role into it as well too. And then there's other factors as well too, like, uh, you know, poor, poor health, poor eating habits seem to play a role into that one as well too. Can cardiovascular disease run in the family? Yes, there's a strong correlation between family history and cardiovascular health. So knowing your family history is super important. And that's one thing that I really stress with my patients as well, too, is a good family history um, and to be able to share that with their doctors because that helps us actually with our screening and, and how we monitor our patients. And with stress, there are a lot of athletes out there that, you know, may not be as healthy and may have cardiovascular disease or have a lot of stress, like I was saying. Uh, But being active and out there, doesn't that release the stress? It is. And in fact, you know, one of the best prescriptions that primary care doctors make is actually, you know, prescribing exercise 
um, to patients. So there's there's a uh, you know there's a lot of studies that in in the literature that that really stress how important um, exercise is and, and the benefits to it. You know, it's not just in the physical sense, but also in the psychological sense. Yeah. What are the most dangerous diseases and health problems for men nowadays? Cardiovascular disease still is the number one killer for most men. Ugh. So heart attacks, strokes, um, um, those are still, it still leads the way in, in killing men. Um, of course, there are um, other issues as well, too, that seem to affect men as well, too. Prostate cancer being one of them. Really? And colon cancer still. Prostate cancer? Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, that's that's odd to me because they're, they have come so far with, you know, the technology and getting, you know, um, the disease under control, if you want to say, uh, over all of these years. Like, if you're diagnosed with prostate cancer, basically it's like it's not a death sentence anymore. That's what exactly. I thought. Yeah, and that's the important part. That's the important part that, that to your uh, um, assertion is that it, diagnosing it is important. So once we know that what, what you have, we can make the right, the proper steps to get it. And unfortunately, you know there are prostate cancers out there that are more um, aggressive. So at least getting screened for it is important. So once we find out that you have it, we can determine whether or not you know management should be aggressive or you know, more of a wait and see. And then increasingly, there's more evidence that wait and see is actually the correct way to do it, especially for prostate cancers that are not aggressive. But unfortunately, there are a percentage of prostate cancers that still tend to be aggressive. And unfortunately, it hits men who, you know, who both screen and don't screen. And unfortunately, there's still a large percentage of our, our men out there who don't screen. And, and that's when the mortality happens. Yeah. I mean, Unfortunately, my my cousin, who was 42 years old, he died of prostate cancer. I'm like, how did he die of prostate cancer at 42? I don't understand. Yeah, and most likely it could have been preventable had it been caught early. Um, You know, just because it's, you know, like we said, prostate cancer oftentimes is not an aggressive cancer and can't be watched over. But again, you, you want to catch the ones that are aggressive because those are the ones that lead to unfortunate events like that. So, Doctor Agatep, tell us why. Like, w- what is regular checkups? Everyone's saying, okay, we have to have regular checkups and early screenings. What does that mean? Like every six months, every three months, like every year? What does that exactly mean? Yeah, for most men under fifty, you know, a checkup every you know, two to three years would be appropriate, especially if you're healthy and have no medical issues. For patients with medical issues under 50, I tend to like to, I tend to use an annual screening um, interval for my patients. So that way I can keep up with and monitor their medications, make sure that their medications don't affect um, their vital organs. And for patients over the age of 50, I usually recommend an annual screening test. And typically a screening test entails, you know, the screening blood work, looking for cardiac risk factors like diabetes, high cholesterol. Um, I oftentimes will do a PSA every one to two years on, on med um, just to make sure that we stay up on, on top of screening for prostate cancer. Um, and in some men, um, there's, there's some um, recommendations that they can bypass the 
you know, the d- digital rectal exam, um, and I still do it in my clinic, but I always discuss prostate cancer screening and the risk of benefits to it as well, too. So I let them um, collaborate with me and make the decision whether or not they want to go ahead with it. Oh, that's excellent. You're not telling them what to do. You come up with a conclusion together. Exactly. And I, I, I like to have my patient make, you know, as, as educated and, and um, you know, decisions that, that fit what they want to do. Um, and I give them the, the best evidence out there um, so they can make the proper decisions on what they want to do. A lot of people going into the doctors may go in with, you know, a, a feeling of or a thought of, you know, this doctor you know, is going to tell me what I'm going to do. Have you found that more and more people are taking accountability for their health or taking it in their hands and asking more questions and, you know, going in and saying, hey, let's talk about this together. What's the direction, you know, my life is going to take? In my practice, that's definitely true. Um, I find that a lot of patients come in um, with, kind of an agenda already. They, they already know from you know, self-research and what's, you know, what's interesting, especially with the availability of information out there, um, that a lot of patients are, are well-studied prior to coming to see me. So they come in with, hey, with information and they often say, hey, you know what, I've read this. This is what they recommend the screening for me. And then we kind of go over the, the, their recommendations and let them know this is what's standard and what's not. Um, and talked about the risks to benefits to screening because even screening itself is not a benign process. You might find things that number one may be unnecessarily, you know, unnecessary to actually the patient's health. You know, they might find something that will lead to tests and biopsies that either cost money or put them at risk and have very little impact on their longevity. Um, so you want to actually be kind of like their guide. You know, they have they come to you with you know, all this information, and your job is to kind of you know, find the, you know, find the beneficial stuff and mm-hmm. take it away from like the chaff, you know? Well, when I was cruising Dr. Google, Dr. Agatep, you know, I found a whole bunch of things <laughs> that were very scary. <laughs> do you That's find totally true. Yeah. Do you find it frustrating when there is a lot of information out there, but it may not pertain anything to do with or have anything to do with, you know, what's going on with you know, your patient at the time? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's so much information out there. And unfortunately, not everybody's nuanced enough to, to figure out which information is high yield or which ones are reputable or which ones are just basically poorly researched information. So, and and that's the problem with, with you know, with, with the Internet. I mean, it's great because you have this repository of information and knowledge out there. But unfortunately, it's not... It's not, uh, there's no tears to the importance or to their reliability. Um, so my job as a physician, number one, is not just to kind of learn all about medicine, but to kind of know what's out there and what, what information is being you know, that given out to patients out there so that way I can make sure that you know, I'm a good guide to information and, and a good guide to health screening for them. When I, I think when people put in stuff into the Internet when they're researching their health, it should the first thing that should come up is something like, uh, are are you feeling this way, this way, and this way? Call a doctor. <laughs> go see a doctor right away or go to the ER. You know how on the phones you have, if you are feeling this and this and this, go to the ER. That's, yeah, that's, that's correct. And there's, you know, and that's one thing that 
I tell patients is don't be afraid to, to reach out to us. And fortunately, with our practice, we have an on-call doctor that's available 24 hours a day for full consultation. And also for me, I encourage my patients to reach out to me through a patient portal. Um, we use an email system that patients can reach out to me, which I check twice a day. Um, and I email them back as soon as I can. So that way they at least can, you know, have continuous access to me that way. Do you find more and more doctors are doing that in um, trying to reach their clients? Yeah, I mean, it seems, seems like a lot of my colleagues are now using systems um, that actually allow patients to, to email them. Um, and, and that's becoming in standard in the industry, which is great. I think especially with, with a busy schedule and with a limited time and the amount of patients that we have to see throughout the day, it's very it's increasingly difficult for us to actually pick up the phone and answer a patient. Mm-hmm. And I tell and I, I try to sell that that system to the patient and and that I tell them you know through email at least number one, um, I can answer you at any time, and number two, I can write out a well thought out answer, and then maybe even provide you links to reputable. Um, information that you can use, you know, to, 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 to treat whatever it is that's going on with you. And then you can always go back to whatever that we talked about and reference what we just said so that way it's not forgotten. Right. Uh, Dr. Agatep, what do, you, what do doctors need to explain when prescribing drugs to men, especially painkillers? Yeah, so increasingly there's been more and more awareness in, in the medical community about the dangers of opiate medication. Oh, um, yes. and oftentimes, um, you know, for the longest time, you know, as a med student, I remember being told that, you know, no one should suffer pain and, and we should be aggressive about managing pain. Um, and, you know, especially with the opiate crisis, we've become much more mindful about how we prescribe those medications and how much we prescribe, and and off, you know, we're not as cavalier as we used to be. Part of it is because we now know the dangers of and how easily people can get hooked on it. So, you know, pain definitely. I try to educate my patients that that you know, pain itself is part of the process. But you don't have to be in a lot of pain, and there are ways for us to manage it without having to use dangerous medication. Yeah, I saw this commercial the other day that actually like took me aback because. It was showing people playing basketball and being in athletic, you know, areas like running and jogging and stuff. And they were like, you know, just take this pill and you can keep on doing what you want to do because you won't feel the pain anymore. And I'm like, isn't pain there for a reason? (laughs) Maybe you Mm -hmm. should feel the pain and sit down for a second. That's so true. I mean, I think. Part of it, too, is that, you know, the influence of direct-to-patient advertising, right? Um, and also that, that, you know, the I think we're given too high of an expectation as far as, like, what's normal or what, what kind of experience we should have when we have either injuries or, or chronic problems, you know? Um, and I think it's my job to kind of educate my patient about, Kind of the things that they're feeling, especially in re- in relation to pain, you know, um, that sometimes a lot of these things um, are oftentimes not not achievable without without trading off, you know, harms and, and mm-hmm. giving them medications that may end up causing more problems than actually treating it. But as athletes, you know, you constantly hear from your coaches, push through the pain, push through this, you know, don't be a wimp and. I think we're conditioned to hear that and 
again, take that pill that takes away the pain and you continue to work that muscle that doesn't need to be worked and causes mm-hmm. more injury. Yeah, true. And then, I, again, part of my education is when I talk to them, I, I tell them, you know, pain is part of your early warning system, and it's also part of your monitoring system. And you you pay attention to it, um, and and basically it, it guides you on what you can and can't do. I mean, there are times when, when patients do have pain, and they can still continue doing what it is what they're doing, but oftentimes I, I tell them, let me be the guide for you for that one. And let me be part of the barometer system that you use to figure out if you can push through this one or are you just doing harm to yourself. So I try to be collaborative with my patients. So that way they never feel like, oh, yeah, I'm left alone to my devices. So I just need to just reach for this pill. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes with my athletes, I tell them, like, you know, use me so I can be there for you. And oftentimes I find that this is a very effective tool mm-hmm. that that they feel confident that, hey, you know what, this pain is either not going to hurt me or it's injurious because Dr. Agatep says, I, you know, and he's there watching me while I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. And, and I find that they're less, that they're less uh, inclined to reach for that, that pain pill. Do you find that a lot of your clients are also using homeopathic methods or uh, Chinese herbs? Yeah, there's a you know the rise of homeopathic and naturopathic ways to manage disease and pain has really risen, especially in our patient population, Hill Beach and in the surrounding areas. Um, you know, are highly educated individuals and they do a lot of research and they try their best to not use pharmaceuticals as much as possible. So I've had to educate myself in the last few years about you know naturopathic means what's what works, what doesn't work, um, and and. It's wonderful to see, actually, that there are more and more um, reputable organizations and, and, you know, academic centers that are doing research on on naturopathic means to manage, you know, problems. Yeah. Um, A friend of mine was was taking Chinese herbs and his stomach was hurting a lot. Like, I'm like, maybe you should stop those Chinese herbs. Is there, when there's that much pain in taking a pill or, I mean... What are your thoughts on that? I don't. Yeah, my thoughts, especially for, you know, if there are acute signs that that something is wrong, pain is one of the big signs that I tell my patients. Always refer to your doctor about this one. You know, if mm-hmm. it's just a dull ache that in the past has been nothing bad, then feel free to reach for home remedies. Um, but definitely something significant, like you know, abdominal pain, chest pain. I wouldn't. Uh, you know, I wouldn't discount those and then reach for a home remedy or a naturopathic remedy, always consult your doctor. Um, and it'll, this is a mantra that we use a lot, but I think that it's it's best to do that one because at least we can be an educated health guide to you. Um, and my patients at least feel confident enough that I don't always reach for, you know, a pharmaceutical means to manage something. What happens if they take like a modium to um, ease the pain and the pain goes away, but then it wears off and then they take some more. I mean, is that um, is that going again, masking the pain again and not being accountable for your health? Yeah, especially if the pain comes back. That's a big red flag for you to, to, to consult your medical professional. Part of it is because that you know the medication itself did not resolve the issue. It just masked it. And now that the medication is wearing off, it's coming back. Um, so we know then that it's not a temporary issue and should be at least addressed by a medical professional. 
What about uh, regular medications that people may take on um, a, a daily basis? What do male patients need to remember about that? So very important, especially even especially with the over the counters, um, they're not benign and they're not always safe. Um, and in fact, actually, many of the problems resulting from you know over the counter medications are very familiar medications like Tylenol and Motrin. Um, so always take it number one as directed by the bottle, mm-hmm. and number two, never take more than what the what the directions say. Um, and if you have any questions at all, especially dosing yourself with it or dosing a loved one with it, always call your doctor and refer to a medical professional. I know uh, we talked about the cost effectiveness or the cost of getting medical help. What do families need to plan for when seeking cost effective and timely ways of obtaining critical needed prescriptions, especially for elderly or, or sick men? It's really important to, you know, again, um, Finding out whether or not your medications is going to be covered by your pharmacy is, is really important. So talking to your pharmacist um, is, is an important way to actually figure out whether or not the medication is going to be cost-effective. Um, second thing is also talking to your doctor about it as well, too, because there are alternatives to medications, especially if they become too expensive for you. We can always find alternatives to um making sure that you get the proper medication and that you never go without it, especially that your elderly uh, family members. Yeah, I know that, I mean, just, I guess, going back to the um, homeopathic stuff, my my husband keeps getting this chest cough and sinus whatever, like every few months. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And so he keeps getting antibiotics. And the first few antibiotics just stopped working. And then he's on to other antibiotics. Well, this time he says, I, I, don't, I just don't want to go back and get some more antibiotics. So I went and got him some homeopathic lung thing. And I don't know if it's kicked in yet. I just got it for him a couple of days ago. But there is a attention to not taking antibiotics anymore, that we're becoming immune to antibiotics. Have you seen that more and more? Yeah, there's been a huge movement away from taking antibiotics, and I actually can appreciate that. Part of it, I, I think, is that um, as, as you know, medical professionals, we, do, we have to do a better job actually screening our patients to see whether or not they really, truly need that antibiotic. Oftentimes in a busy practice, doctors will just prescribe something, um, you know, without kind of really determining or doing a good evaluation of whether or not the patient truly needs it. So there's been more and more education in, in our side of the medical field than on being really um, conscientious about making sure that we truly are treating, you know, bacteria um, and that the right antibiotic is prescribed for part of it is because now we're seeing the rise of multi-drug-resistant bacteria. Um, and to, to kind of revise a little bit of your statement, it's not us that becomes resistant to the antibiotic, it's the bacteria. So oh, the, ba- right. the antibiotics target um, metabolic processes in the bacteria that lead to killing them. Um, because if it worked on us, it would actually kill us. So at least the, the medications, the antibiotics, don't really you know affect us at the cellular level, but it affects basically the bacteria, but then they start to develop resistance to it. Um, so they become more immune to the medications that we give them, and then eventually you get, you know, bacteria that are now common in the community, like like you know, resistant staph infections. Mm, that sounds gross. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, and it affects a lot of people. Yes. You see, like, you know, a couple a couple of years ago, the Redskins and the Green Bay Packers were laid low with this bacteria that spread through their yeah. their locker rooms. Yeah, it's it's scary as well because it's like, oh, yeah. we're all resistant to it. What? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's you know the, the these bacteria. It's, it's basically it goes back to that old adage, right? That you build a mouse trap, and nature will build a better mouse. Oh, right. and it's that. It's a chemical warfare, you know. It's it's kind of an arms race between us and the and these germs. Um, and you know, a, a majority of the bacteria in our body don't actually cause disease, and in fact, they're actually very helpful for us. Mm-hmm. It's the reason why a lot of our patients are very keenly aware of like you know probiotics and how important they are, especially if you're taking you know antibiotics or medications. Interesting. Now, I love the way you put that because all. All these years I've heard, well, doctors are prescribing too many antibiotics and now we're becoming resistant to it. And But actually it's just how life is, right? The, the, the um, bacteria is becoming smarter. It's not about yeah, doctors I mean, over-prescribing. Exactly. So it, all the prescription is actually part of the problem, you know, and oftentimes doctors just to get the patient out of their clinic you know, quick enough, you know, we'll prescribe an antibiotic, and it turns out it's a, it's a virus, right? Mm-hmm. So each time we give the patient an antibiotic without really, you know, without really assessing them, we end up actually increasing the likelihood that a bacteria will develop that's resistant to that antibiotic. Um, you know, the, the, the process of actually, like, antibiotic resistance has been going on way even before humans have been around because, you know, these bacteria, that's how they compete for food is they use basically chemicals that we ended up using as antibiotics against each other, you know, and, and um, that's how penicillin was actually discovered. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, Dr. Agatep, can you leave us with some top tips for this Men's Health Month? But I, again, we say Men's Health Year, year round. How can uh, we stay healthy and Continue to communicate with our medical advisors. Yeah, that, that, thank you very much. Um, so, it, you know, I would I just want our men to understand and, and definitely um, feel confident to, to reach out and talk to your doctor. Create a collaborative um, relationship with your doctor, and and just know that it's it's okay to um, talk to your doctor. Don't suffer in silence. To quote you, um, it's never too late to engage in healthy behavior. You know, may you be 20, 30, 40, or 50, or 60, um, you know, it's never too late to start doing things right. Um, so here are kind of like reminders that I want my you know, all our men to kind of know, and everybody else can pay attention to this as well, too. So listen to your doctor and your pharmacist and take your medications as prescribed. Get regular physical activity. Uh, make sure that you eat healthy, you know, and, and I like things that are, I, I always prescribe things that are not processed. So a variety of fruits and vegetables that make that a rich part of your diet. Um, you know, making sure that you avoid smoking. Um, even though smoking is a decline, there are still niches of, of people who still, you know, find smoking cool. And then vaping, the data is very uh, much nascent, so we really don't know how dangerous vaping is. And I err aside a caution. Um, don't start it. Um, stress reduction is super important. I really do want our patients to find ways to, to reduce your stress because stress is still the leading killer of Americans. You know, mm-hmm. um, get your regular checkup, get your appropriate screenings, know your family history, and then tell your doctor about your family history. And then lastly, 
don't be afraid to talk to your doctor about your feelings. It's okay to actually, you know, talk to your doctor about stress, talk to your doctor about depression or anxiety, and, and you still retain your man card even if you do that. Right, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Elmo Agatep. He, again, is family and sports medicine physician for Optum Care Medical Group in Sill Beach and also uh, the U.S. Women's Water Polo Team physician. Uh, thanks so much for your time. If anybody would like to um, find out more information on you and what you do, how can they do that? Um, you can visit us at our office in Optum Care Medical Group in Seal Beach. Um, you can reach us at 562-799-7071 or look us up at www.optumcaremedicalgroup.com. All right. Thank you so much, and good luck to your daughter out there. I hope they win. Bring home the gold. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure talking to you again. Always great talking to you. I look forward to speaking with you again. Oh, let's make it let's make it soon. Thank you. This is ESPN LA 710. ESPN LA 710.